Amen. Amen. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there's blue ones in the pew in front of you that you're welcome to use, welcome to keep. And if you're not sure, I'm going to make it really simple. Go to page 1. That's where we're going to be today. If you've never opened a Bible, not sure where to go, just go to the beginning. We are starting a new series today looking at just that, the beginning. The book of Genesis, in particular, we're for right now going to tackle chapters 1 through 11. But we're going to look at how did this all get started. We're calling our series, I think, actually I don't remember now, the Foundations of the Gospel. Is that what's on your bulletins? Gospel Foundations, thank you. The idea is that this good news we celebrate, it had to, had to start somewhere. It has to, certain things had to be in place for the good news that we love to happen. And so let's go back to the very beginning and look at the foundations of the good news that we love so much. So I'm going to read for us this morning, Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 1, ending in chapter 2, verse 3. So I invite you to he- hear these words and listen to what God did. So hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse, and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. 
And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth Everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, a few years ago, something, I don't know what word to use, other utterly revolutionary happened to me. Something that changed every moment of my day from the time I wake up to the time I go to sleep. In fact, it is no overstatement to say this event changed how I see everything in life. Do you know what happened to me? I got a new pair of glasses. That's right. That's right. So why is that so revolutionary? Well, if you wear glasses or contacts, you know that you're supposed to go to the eye doctor every year, maybe two, to get your prescription checked and updated if there's a change. Well, at the time, I was mainly wearing contacts and just kept my glasses around for other times, so I never bothered to update them. I figured that when I wear them, you know, I can still see enough. I can get around. I can do what I have to do. So one year went by without me updating my glasses. And then year two. And then five. And then 10. Finally, in year 12, 
I decided maybe I should look into getting some new glasses. And when I did, I say it was revolutionary because when I walked out of that eye doctor, I couldn't stop talking about how much clearer I could see in my new glasses. Now keep in mind, it's not that I couldn't see before. It's not that I was blind. But now, now things looked sharp and in focus. And I think what I, what I noticed most of all was that everything had more beauty in it. That there were sharper edges and, and I could just make out what before was just a little fuzzy, now just shone. Everything changed when I saw it through a new lens. Okay, so why do you care about my visionary revolution? Well, first of all, because I'm your friend. No, but more importantly, because I think the same thing can happen to us when we look at our Bibles. See, we read these same passages over and over, and we get used to seeing them even if they start to get a little blurry, even if they get a little fuzzy. We figure, I can see them well enough. Like, I can get around my Bible. I, I get how things, just like I know the furniture in my room and my house and I can get around, I know the parts of the Bible well enough that I can kind of get where I need to go. But we don't realize there's more beauty to see. And I would argue that there's a lens that we can look through that helps bring all of our Bible into sharper focus and helps us see more than before. And that lens, what I'm calling a kingdom lens. Now hopefully you've heard, this should not be new if you've been here for a while, but the story of the Bible is the story of a king and his kingdom. And just like every kingdom, this kingdom consists of both a place and a people. From the first page to the last, this idea is woven all throughout your Bibles. King, place, people. King, place, people. And when we understand these concepts, it gives us a lens both for how to read the word and how to see the world. Whenever we open our Bibles, wherever we may be, front to back, when we see what's there through the lens of a king and his kingdom, the story gets a little clearer, and I would argue, more beautiful. So this morning, as we start this journey through the book of Genesis, along the way, we're going to encounter probably many stories that you've seen before. If you have any familiarity with the church or the Bible, odds are you're going to recognize a lot of these stories. But what we want is to see them afresh. We want to kind of adjust the focus a little bit. That little click thing, the eye doctor, the click, 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 click. We're going to adjust the focus and now look through our kingdom lens. And my hope is as we do, we're going to see more clearly how these stories connect to one another and to the big story of redemption. So this morning we're going to begin where every good story begins. In the beginning. And as we look through this passage, what we're going to see are several different kingdom concepts. Okay, that's what I'm calling our, our points today. We're going to look at six of these kingdom concepts. And these kingdom concepts are going to help us build a framework for how to see creation and the rest of the Bible more clearly. Now, I'm just going to full disclosure, and my disclaimer that I need to give is there's way too much here that we can't cover every element of Genesis 1. So there's going to be controversies that we don't tackle. There's going to be questions I don't answer. There's going to be things that may, don't, 
maybe don't even get mentioned. You're going to be like, how did he not talk about that? There's too much here. Okay, but our goal this morning is to look through this kingdom lens and see how it brings the events of creation into proper focus and helps us see them with even greater clarity and beauty. So what we're trying to understand is how does this chapter in the Bible, chapter plus a few verses, how does Genesis 1 set human history on a course that takes the rest of this book to resolve in the rest of human history? It's no small task, all right? So let's jump in. Let's look at Genesis 1. So if we're going to talk about a kingdom, the first thing we need is a king, right? You can't have a kingdom without a king. So our first kingdom concept, if, whenever you hear me say that, if you're taking notes, those are going to be our main headers. So the first kingdom concept we see is that the creator is king. The creator is king. And we meet our king in verse 1. Look there. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So notice, right as your Bible starts, like if you're picking up the Bible for the first time, you know nothing else. This is all you know right from the get-go, is that in the beginning, God is there. Already. He doesn't come on later, that when everything we know and can see and have heard and experienced, and when that all started, God's already there. He is eternal. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That's the first thing we need to see right up front. We're meeting the main character here, and it's God. And he's been from all eternity. And from our passage, we're going to see two things that show us that this eternal God is king over creation. Those two things are his power and his authority. First, you see the king's power on display. I didn't have to think very hard about this. You see it simply in the fact that he created. Say, how do you know God's powerful? He made everything. And don't just mentally move past this. I I fear that sometimes we're like window shoppers walking through the mall and we just kind of like see like, oh, that's kind of cool. And we just keep walking... Like, this should be the thing that as you're walking past creation in Genesis 1, you stop in your tracks and you say, what? He made everything. From, he made a sun. Think about this. He made a sun, this ball of gas that's on fire and burning. And it's so powerful, it burns us from millions of miles away. It's not like a fire where if you get too close, it's so far away and it burns us. He made oceans that rage and foam. He made the heights of Mount Everest and the depths of the Grand Canyon. He made both the vast Andromeda galaxy and little tiny babies. The king made those. How did he do it? The prophet Jeremiah said, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth By your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you, he says. So the creator is powerful and this unmatched power is one way we see the creator's kingship in Genesis 1. But we also see his kingship and his authority over creation. Look at verse 5 again. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. Verse 8, and God called the expanse heaven. 
Verse 10, God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together, he called seeds. Why is that important? Because naming implies authority. Only parents name their children. I can't name your kid, right? And aren't we glad, because whenever like, you're expecting, everybody's got a great idea for what you should name your kid, right? They're like, oh, you know what a good name is. And only the Martsoffs here were good enough to like, hear a good suggestion and name their child a really strong, good, powerful name of Daniel or something, I don't know. But only parents get to name their children because only they have authority. Another example is back in 2015, the President of the United States changed the name of Mount McKinley back to its original name, which was Denali. How could he do that? Like, I could say, I think that mountain should be called Mount Weller. It doesn't make it so. But when the President does it, he has authority. And God's naming of creation here shows he has authority over it. And you see this authority over creation throughout the Bible. The argument the Bible makes is so simple. He made it, so it's his. He made it, so it's his. Listen to Psalm 95 that we read earlier. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his. Why? For he made it, and his hands form the dry land. What we see is the creator is king because he created. So why does this matter? Why is this point so foundational? Three reasons. First, the fact that the creator is king makes us accountable to him. If, we, if you and I just popped into existence came from nothing, headed to nothing. We could do whatever we want. And there, should, there would be no one to tell us any different. But, if we were created by God, then he has authority to tell us how to live. We are not our own. Instead, we belong to our maker. We are his, why? Because he made us. This is the whole foundation of sin. If God's not creator, we don't sin against him because he doesn't have the right to tell us what to do. But because he does have the right to tell us what to do, sin is a thing. In fact, this is why sin is such a big deal. We are rebelling against the king who made us. What gives him the right to tell us how to live? Simple. He made us. And that makes him king. But this fact that the creator is king doesn't only provide the basis of our accountability it also provides the basis of our comfort. As Christians, we love the fact, and we rest in the fact, that God works all things together for our good, right? But the only reason we can trust that he's actually able to work all things for our good is because he created all things. The king has authority over all things because he made all things. So it's our accountability, our comfort, and the third reason being the king being creator matters is that it's the foundation of our worship. This is why we worship him as king. Revelation 4 that we read at the beginning tells us exactly why we worship the one on the throne. It says, Worthy, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Don't miss that word. For. You deserve glory and honor and power, God, and now we're going to tell him why. 
For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. We worship God as king because he's the creator. Okay? So that's our first kingdom concept. So now that we've seen that the king is creator, in the second kingdom concept from our passage, let's look at how this king creates. And what we're going to see, this is number two, is that the king creates through his word. The king creates through his word. Look at verse two. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then comes verse three. And God said, this king who had always existed spoke into the darkness, the chaos, and the nothingness and said, let there be light. And there was light. And then he did it again and again and again. Eight times in Genesis 1, the king speaks and says, let there be And eight times, it was so. When the king speaks, his word creates what it commands. Psalm 33 tells us, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. The earth should fear him, it says, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. In other words, our king's word creates what it commands. Now, that's, that's mind-blowing right there. But here's what's really, really amazing. Is that this isn't just how galaxies and mountains and people are created. This is how a Christian is created. When the Spirit of God hovers over the deep darkness of an empty, unbelieving heart... The king then speaks through his gospel word and says, let there be light. And suddenly there's light. That's what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, God creates Christians the same way he created the world. Through his word. As Phil showed us last week, Paul goes on to say, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. So understanding how the king creates in Genesis 1 helps us understand how the king creates today. And what do we see? The king creates through his word. Okay, so now that we've seen that the king is creator... And we've seen how the king creates. In our third kingdom concept, let's look at what the king creates. Remember at the beginning we said our kingdom pattern is a king, a place, and a people. And what we find in Genesis 1 verses 3 to 25 is the king creating that kingdom place. And this place is a world of wonder. So what do we learn about this world? The first thing we see is that this world has order. It has structure. I hope some of these, sometimes it helps when you hear something read out loud. I hope there were phrases that you're just like, wow, they said that a lot. 
That seems to show up and maybe you notice things you hadn't noticed before. But notice the order and the structure. Verse 2, if you look down there, describes a place of disorder. Most commentators agree that when it's talking about the deep or the waters, these are references to the waters of chaos. And so what does the king do here? He brings order out of the chaos. The earth, it says, is without form and empty. Without form and empty. Oh, there's so much in these words that we won't get to. But let me tell you this. What does the king do when he finds a world that's without form and empty? He forms the formless and fills the empty. Look at days one through three. There, in days one to three, the king creates different spheres, we'll call them. He creates night and day, the skies and seas, and the land. Then, so when he does that, God's bringing shape and form to the world. Then on days four to six, the king takes those spheres that he created, right? These categories, if you will. And what does he do? He fills them. So you've got this formless world and he forms it into spheres. And you've got this empty world and what does he do? He fills it. So he creates the sun, the moon, and the stars to fill the day and the night. He creates birds and swimming creatures to fill the sky and the sea. And he creates animals and people to fill the earth. What was chaos and without form is now ordered and structured. What was empty is now filled. Notice how multiple times it tells us he separated one thing from another. Light from darkness, waters above from waters below. He separated and then he sorted. It tells us how plants and animals were each made according to its kind. Creation is reminding us that what God does is he takes chaos and he creates order. He takes darkness and he makes light. He takes the empty wasteland and fills it with life. He does that both with worlds and he does that with hearts. So I just wonder this morning, do you need a God like that? Have you ever uttered something along the lines of, man, my life is a mess right now. Is your world filled with chaos? Do you struggle with the darkness and emptiness inside? Friends, if so, who better to look to than the God who creates order and beauty out of chaos? And notice what this king thinks of each aspect of his creation. Six times, six times, he steps back after he makes something, admires his handiwork, and says, that is good. That's good. Like, that doesn't have to be in your Bibles. That's significant. The world the king made was a world. We can and should enjoy the king's creation because he does. It's right for us to love sunsets and stars and mountains and waterfalls. Why? Because our creator does. He made them. And then he said, that's good. So here's a, here's a really challenging application for you this week. Go to Eagle Creek. Go on a hike. Get out in nature. And as you walk, worship. Enjoy the world of wonders that God has made because God does. He said it's good. Okay, so we've got this beautiful world of wonders and everything is seeming great, but sadly we know something went wrong. 
we rebelled against the king. Even though, as we saw in Romans 1, we've seen his power and what he's made. Like that's, that's why it says we have no excuse. Is if you're, you don't need any fancy philosophical argument for the existence of God. You know what you need? You need a tree. You need a sun. Go look at a mountain. Look at the ocean. Where did these come from? Who's in control of these? God says, you don't have an excuse because I've showed you how powerful I am. Open your eyes and look around. But even though he's shown us and we've seen it, we know it says that he's our maker and our rightful king. We don't honor him as God or give thanks to him. Thinking we know better and claiming to be wise, we ignore God. And in the process, we actually become fools as we trade the truth for a lie and give up the glory of God for cheap imitation gods. The Bible says we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. We focus our lives, our time, and our money on things and people that God has made instead of the God who made them. And because of our sin, the bad news is we were kicked out of this paradise that he created. And ever since then, the king's people have been trying to get back to the king's place. We've all been looking for home. The Israelites thought they had it when they got into the promised land, but that was only a shadow of the world we lost. And we know it didn't last. So today we find ourselves still longing for the world of wonder that we were created to inhabit. A world of order and peace. A world of beauty and splendor. And we're not home yet. But we have hope. Why? Because when our king left us, he told us, I go to prepare a place for you. And that place is the kingdom we were made to live in and enjoy world of wonders created by our king so now we've seen two of our three pieces of our kingdom framework we've seen the king we've seen his kingdom place and now on our next point we're going to see the king creates a kingdom people look at genesis 1 so god created man in his own image in the image of god he created him Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, so what we see here is that when the king created people, he created us to be ruling reflectors. Ruling reflectors. And that phrase isn't in your Bible, so what do I mean by that? Well, first, the king made people to be reflectors. It says all people were made in his image and likeness. And this is a staggering privilege. No other part of creation gets this honor. God made lots of things, and nothing else does he say, you get to be made in my image. Only people. We were made to be image bearers of the king, to show what he's like, to reflect to one another what our king is like. We were made to reflect him. And this truth, man, we could, we could do a series of sermons on this alone. So I know that I'm barely touching this. 
But this truth that we are made in the image of God is the very foundation of human dignity. The reason all human beings have value and the reason there is such a thing as human rights is right here in Genesis 1. Because all human life is created in the image of God. This right here is why abortion, assisted suicide, racism, neglect of the poor, murder, abuse, insults, and any other sins against people are so evil. Because when you sin against an image bearer, you sin against the king whose image they bear. And some of you are still struggling with the fact that I included abortion and abuse along with insults in the same list. And that wasn't accidental. Because we sometimes let ourselves off the hook because we don't commit what we think are the most heinous. And yet James tells us that with our, with our tongue we bless the Lord and we curse people who are made in his image and says, brothers, this ought not be so. Because we're image bearers. When you insult that person, when you just tear them down and say horrible things against them because of whatever reason you have, you forget whose image they bear. This is why the king's people value all human life, born or unborn, whatever the race, whatever the ability or disability, because all people are created to be reflectors of the king. And not just reflectors, but ruling reflectors. Here in our passage, the king gives us dominion over the earth and its creatures. And this aspect of creation, friends, this is what gives each of our lives purpose. If you're here and you're like, I don't know what life's about. Here it is. Again, Genesis 1. Our lives have value because we reflect the king. Our lives have purpose because the king made us to do something. That something is we were created to rule the earth under the authority of the great king. So what does it mean that we are to rule the earth? You say, well, that's, that's good news. I'm in charge. So we can just do whatever we want to the world because we have dominion over it. No. Of course not. We are to rule the world the way God the King rules the world. We are to bring order out of chaos. We are to cultivate beauty. We are to create. Create lives. Create families. Create emails and gardens and memories and songs and meetings and meals. All sorts of things and create them in such a way that God would look at that and say, that's good. That's good. We are to foster a place where people can flourish. And in all of our ruling, we are to also be reflecting, showing the world what the true king is like and pointing people's gaze back to him. But just like before, we know something went wrong with this. We all fail to reflect our king well and to rule the world he's given us in a way that is good. But once again, the gospel connects to this creation issue. Where we failed in our role as image bearers, Jesus, who Colossians calls the image of the invisible God, succeeded. So that now we who are in Jesus by faith, Romans says you and I, followers of Jesus, are being conformed to his image. In other words, we are being renewed in the image of our creator. We are being restored as ruling reflectors of the king. Okay, so now that we've seen what the king creates, 
our last two kingdom concepts, we're just going to look at the king himself to learn two important things about what he's like. So kingdom concept number five, the king provides. Look at Genesis 1.29. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. Now, I love that word at the beginning of that, that word behold. It means the speaker's trying to get our attention. It's like God's saying here, listen, you need to hear this. I've given you everything. Everything you need. Every plant, every tree, they're yours. The king goes out of his way here in the very first chapter of the Bible to make sure, okay, there's a lot of things we don't know about him yet, but one thing we know right from the get-go is the king provides. And notice that his provision is both general for all creatures and specially focused on his people because all of creation is dependent on the king. He feeds every animal. He waters every plant. But the king especially provides for his people. We saw this in Matthew 5 in the Lord's Prayer series that it tells us that our father, the king, knows what we need before we ask him. He knows. And he knows better than you and I do. So this morning, if we feel like, you know, God, there is something I need, and I'm not sure that you're on the same page as me, remember the king knows. And he doesn't just know what we need, he gives it gladly. Luke 12 says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Our king loves to provide for his people. In fact, he's been doing it from the beginning. And here's yet another gospel picture. Are you starting to sense a theme that Genesis 1 introduces all these ideas and concepts throughout the Bible and all the gospel elements keep pointing back? So the most extravagant way our creator has provided for us is not by giving us every tree and plant for food, but by providing his son who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He loved us by giving his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So now because of that, we can say with Paul in Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Brothers and sisters, if you trust in Jesus, this is your king. What we see here way back in Genesis 1 is that your king provides for you. And that brings us to our sixth and final kingdom concept last one is the king finishes what he starts. Look at Genesis 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And I love this point because, I don't know about you, but I'm good at starting. 
I'm a good starter. I love the idea of a new project or a new task. I love picking up a new book. There's something intoxicating about seeing a book you haven't opened yet and just starting that first page. I'm not always as good at finishing those things because you get bored, you get distracted, you just get tired, and so you move on to something else, right? Is there anybody else here who can relate to that? No. Okay. Well, just I'll be your example then. But what we see here is that thankfully, God is not like that. Our king finishes what he starts. After six days, the king stopped working. And he didn't stop because he was tired. He didn't stop because he was distracted. He didn't stop because he moved on to something else. He stopped because he was done. Creation was finished. Complete. Now it may not seem, you hear that, like that's interesting, but it's not a big deal that the king finishes what he starts, right? But one more time, let's connect a few gospel dots here. There's two other times in the Bible where our king signals to us that he has finished what he started. I'm going to mention one now and then another in a minute when I close. The next time our king tells us he finished what he started is on a cross. In John 19, hanging under a sign that reads, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, King Jesus proclaimed, It is finished. His work was done. As we sang earlier, Jesus finished the work God gave him. Redemption was accomplished. And friends, this is really, really good news that the king finishes what he starts. Because the king finished our redemption, that means there's nothing more to do. Salvation, redemption, is not saying Jesus has done a whole lot. He's ticked most of the boxes. All you've got left are the last three. He finished it. All that's left for you to do is believe it, to trust the king's finished work. So whatever you've done, whatever your sins, the work of redemption is finished in Jesus. You don't have to work yourself into God's favor. Oh, you can't work yourself into God's favor. That is why it's such good news that the king finishes what he starts. This should give us such great hope. So friend, if you're in Christ, but you're here and you say, I know that, but I am struggling. I am discouraged. Honestly, I'm not sure how I'm going to make it. Oh, friend, take heart. The king who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion because the king finishes what he starts. And at the end of creation, what do we find? Rest. Rest. Oh, don't, don't miss the movement of God's work here in Genesis 1. Creation moves from a dark and empty chaos to a world filled with life and rest and blessing. In fact, let me try to tie this all together. We've talked about a lot and we didn't get to a lot. But let me leave you with a picture of why this creation story matters. See, this same kingdom pattern that we see here at the beginning is the same kingdom pattern we see at the end. 
At the end of the story, here's what you find. We find a king. A king with all authority because he is both creator and redeemer. And this king is ruling over a new creation. This new creation is a new kingdom place that is more beautiful than we can imagine. A world so amazing that the greatest earthly glories merely whet our appetites for the wonders that await. And in this kingdom place, there's a kingdom people. And these people are redeemed, ruling reflectors, perfectly reflecting the king in their glorified bodies. They are ruling over the new creation with the king, and they are perfectly provided for by the king. And when all this comes to pass, the king will finally finish what he started. Listen and see if you hear all that in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So Chapelwood, may we delight ourselves in our Creator King. May we love one another as the king's people. And may we long for the day the king finishes what he started and we are at home at last in the king's place. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you as our creator and we praise you as our redeemer. Thank you for this (laughs) unbelievable picture. Lord, how you do this blows me away. How you bring the story of the world full circle. No one could have come up with this. So we marvel at your plan of redemption. We marvel at your power that's displayed all around us every day. Every day you make the sun come up. You make our world spin on its axis. God, help us not be blind to the reminders you've given us in creation that you are there and you are powerful and you are good. And God, thank you that even though we've rebelled against you and have have missed the signs and have turned our back on them, that you did not leave us to ourselves, but you came, the creator entered creation. You subjected yourself to our taunts and our mocking and even to our death so that we could rise with you and be new creations, that we can await the culmination of all that you have planned, where we can be forever with our King 
to see your face, to be with your people, and to enjoy you forever. So God, we as your people praise you this morning, and we thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray, and all God's people said,